Welcome to the March 26th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll review data on spliceosomal gene mutations, evaluate the impact of ruxolitinib on weight gain, and assess the effect of complement blockade with eculizumab on high-risk patients with stem cell transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Rare and Private Spliceosomal Gene Mutations Drive Partial, Complete, and Dual Phenocopies of Hotspot Alterations by Joseph Pengalo from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and colleagues. Somatic mutations in genes encoding RNA splicing factors are among the most common genetic changes observed in many hematologic malignancies. For example, spliceosomal gene mutations are found in 60 to 70% of patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, 5 to 18% of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and 5 to 25% of acute myeloid leukemias. Mutations in spliceosomal genes are also found in some solid tumors, including about 30% of uveal melanomas. Interestingly, while there are more than 300 proteins involved in regulating when and how each RNA is spliced to its final form, most of these spliceosomal mutations occur in only three genes, SF3B1, SRSF2, and U2AF1. Further, in each gene, the mutations tend to occur as missense changes at a highly specific and limited set of hotspot residues, notably the P95 residue of SRSF2 and the S34 and Q157 residues of U2AF1. However, there are a number of rare or private mutations in these same genes whose functional significance is largely unknown. In this study, the authors set out to discover whether rare SRSF2 and U2AF1 mutations mimic the splicing phenotypes of the common hotspot mutations, cause different splicing alterations, or have no phenotype at all and are simply passenger mutations. Pengalo et al. studied isogenic cell lines with and without each of 14 different rare or unique spliceosomal mutations and also examined some primary patient samples to determine the likely pathogenicity of non-hotspot SRSF2 and U2AF1 mutations. They discovered that 11 of these 14 rare mutations in SRSF2 and U2AF1 induced distinct splicing alterations. These included partially or completely phenocopying the alterations in exon and splice site recognition induced by hotspot mutations in the same gene. Specifically, they found that both the common and rare mutations in SRSF2 cause the same type of altered exonic splicing enhancer preference and similar overall changes in the types of genes that were misspliced. Similarly, 
they found that both the common and rare mutations in U2AF1 tended to cause the same type of splicing defect as a result of alterations in 3' splice site recognition. However, a few of the rare mutations had no splicing phenotype, suggesting that they are irrelevant passenger mutations. It should be kept in mind, however, that it is still possible that these seemingly silent mutations could be involved in transformation through some other biological process than altered splicing. Overall, data presented in this report suggests that many rare and private spliceosomal mutations likely contribute to disease pathogenesis and illustrate the utility of molecular assays to inform precision medicine. Ultimately, Clinical decision-making will need to take into account both common and rare spliceosomal mutations. Next up, we'll discuss evidence from the blood article entitled Ruxolitinib Can Cause Weight Gain by Blocking Leptin Signaling in the Brain via JAK2-STAT3 by Nicole Mollet from Weill Cornell and colleagues. Acquired mutations in the JAK2 or MPL genes lead to aberrant activation of JAK-STAT signaling and are common in myeloproliferative neoplasms or MPNs. Ruxolitinib is a JAK12 tyrosine kinase inhibitor used to treat patients with certain MPNs. Notably, the Food and Drug Administration originally approved ruxolitinib for the treatment of advanced myelofibrosis because of its efficacy in reducing symptoms and splenomegaly in this morbid disease. However, it has been known for some time that ruxolitinib use is associated with weight gain and hyperlipidemia through unknown mechanisms. In this study, the investigators first quantified the amount of weight gain associated with starting ruxolitinib in a cohort of 179 patients with MPN, treated at Weill Cornell Medical Center. Subjects were identified by an unbiased electronic query using standardized tools and methods. All patients with a confirmed MPN diagnosis starting ruxolitinib treatment were included. Patients taking ruxolitinib for graft-versus-host disease after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation were removed from the cohort, as were patients receiving ruxolitinib only after transformation to an acute leukemia. Demographics, vital signs, laboratory values, and concomitant medications were collected at baseline and during treatment. Patients received ruxolitinib for a median of 120 weeks at the time of study. The median weight gain among all patients was 6.7% of starting weight, with the average weight gain being 12% among patients gaining any weight. The increase in weight was observed regardless of the pretreatment body mass index. Thus, weight gain was common and substantial. The authors found that patients with both indolent and more advanced MPNs gained considerable weight, suggesting that this weight gain did not solely result from correction of MPN-linked symptoms seen mostly in advanced patients, such as loss of appetite due to splenomegaly. In addition to weight gain, total and LDL cholesterol and triglycerides increased significantly in these patients. Although median random serum glucose was slightly higher in patients taking ruxolitinib, the investigators did not find ruxolitinib use was associated with changes in cardiovascular risk factors, such as diabetes or high blood pressure. 
Appetite is elaborately regulated. One of the most important regulatory pathways involves the cytokine leptin. Leptin is produced by adipocytes and is critically involved in controlling hunger, satiety, metabolism, and body weight. Leptin serves as a feedback signal, reporting nutritional state to the brain. After feeding, leptin levels rise, and this reduces appetite and feeding. Disturbances of leptin signaling are associated with obesity, hyperlipidemia, and elevated plasma glucose. Leptin acts on specific leptin receptors expressed on specialized neurons within the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus in the brain. According to Malay and colleagues, the effects of the hypothalamic leptin receptor signaling are largely mediated by the JAK2 STAT3 pathway. Since ruxolitinib is a potent inhibitor of JAK2 and causes disruption of this signaling pathway, the authors set out to determine if inhibition of leptin signaling could be responsible for the weight gain observed in patients. The authors developed a mouse model to pursue this question. Eight-week-old male C57 black 6J mice were randomized into four groups, fasted, fasted plus leptin, fed, and fed plus ruxolitinib. Recombinant leptin was administered intraperitoneally to fasted mice one hour before harvest. Ruxolitinib was administered at a dose of 60 mg per kilogram, which is roughly equivalent to the human dose and has been previously shown sufficient for CNS penetration. All mice were sacrificed and perfused with 4% paraformaldehyde, and their brains were harvested, dehydrated with 30% sucrose, and cryopreserved. Leptin receptor signaling in the brain was measured by immunofluorescence staining for STAT3 phosphorylation, referred to as phosphostat-3. Fasted mice had low phosphostat-3 that could be induced by exogenous leptin to a level seen in fed mice. Conversely, the robust phosphostat-3 staining observed in fed mice could be completely blocked by ruxolitinib. Remarkably, Phosphostat-3 signaling in the fed plus ruxolitinib cohort was indistinguishable from that of fasted mice. As described in the study, ruxolitinib could also block signaling in fasted mice treated with exogenous recombinant leptin, suggesting that the inhibition of feeding-induced phosphostat-3 signaling was at least partly due to a direct blockade of leptin's effect. Molay et al. suggest that these results offer a potential mechanistic explanation for the weight gain and increased cholesterol observed in patients taking ruxolitinib. To summarize, on-target activity of ruxolitinib on JAK2 can abrogate postprandial leptin signaling, potentially causing hyperphagia and contribute to weight gain experienced by most patients. Thus, the authors suggest that physicians beginning ruxolitinib treatment should inform their patients of this drug effect and help mitigate adverse outcomes by offering appropriate dietary counseling and lifestyle management recommendations to those with early weight gain. Now for a review of the report published in Blood entitled Complement Blockade for TA-TMA. Lessons Learned from Large Pediatric Cohort Treated with Eculizumab by Sonata Jodell from the Department of Pediatrics, University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and Colleagues.
Transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, referred to as TATMA, is recognized as a severe complication of hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HSCT, significantly affecting patients' well-being and transplant outcomes. Awareness of TATMA has increased in recent years, resulting in more centers implementing prospective screening for this condition. Untreated patients with TATMA have significant organ damage and dismal outcomes with a one-year post-transplant survival of only 17%. The onset of TATMA is associated with elevated lactate dehydrogenase, schistocytes on blood smear, de novo thrombocytopenia or anemia, or increased transfusion requirements, hypertension greater than 99% for age, proteinuria or elevated soluble terminal complement complex activity with plasma SC5B-9 above the normal value of less than 244 nanograms per milliliter. The diagnosis can be confirmed by tissue biopsy. Jodell and colleagues studied 64 pediatric HSCT recipients with high-risk TATMA and multi-organ injury treated with the complement blocker eculizumab. These patients were a subset of 566 patients under the age of 18 years who were transplanted during the study period. TATMA was typically diagnosed during the first 100 days post-transplant and more than 80% had elevated serum C5B-C9 levels. The dose was individually adjusted based on pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic measurement of efficacy. Overall, 36 of 64 treated patients, or 56%, achieved CR, 5 patients, or 8%, achieved PR, and 23, or 36%, had no response by the end of eculizumab therapy. The median number of eculizumab doses given was 11, and overall median therapy duration was 66 days. Overall survival was improved compared to historical controls, with 66% of patients alive at one year post-HSCT, which is much improved compared to historical controls. Eculizumab was well-tolerated without any significant side effects attributed to the drug. As presented in the report, responding patients benefited from a brief but intensive eculizumab therapy course using PK-PD-guided dosing, requiring a median of 11 doses of eculizumab. Data showed that subjects with higher complement activation measured by elevated blood SC5B-9 at the start of therapy were less likely to respond to treatment and required more doses of eculizumab. Patients with intestinal bleeding had the fastest eculizumab clearance, required the highest number of eculizumab doses, and had lower one-year survival. Over 70% of survivors had proteinuria on long-term follow-up. In summary, while two-thirds of TATMA patients had an excellent response, one-third did not, and many patients were left with residual organ dysfunction. The authors plan to study early intervention strategies and recommend further investigation to find additional ways to target endothelial injury pathways. However, the data suggests that complement blockade with eculizumab is an effective therapeutic strategy for the majority of high-risk TATMA.
For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.